You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 73. With me is Miss Abby Tabor. Hello, Matt. Welcome back. And Abby's been holding down the fort since I've been gone for the last, like, two weeks. Yeah, I think so, because Frank and I did a couple of podcast episodes while you were out, so held down the fort, but welcome back. Happy to be back and very much appreciated. I was bouncing around between Washington, D.C., over at NASA headquarters and also over in Los Angeles. Uh, But speaking of podcasts, while I was at headquarters and having all the meetings, of course, you have to run outside and go to a food truck to get some food. So while standing outside waiting for a chicken a fried chicken sandwich, I ran into NASA's very own Jim Green. Ah, cool. And the host of Gravity Assist, Mm -hmm. the NASA headquarters podcast. Yeah, the new new podcast. Yeah, so we got to chit chat. We talked about some of his episodes and how much fun he was having. I think they had just finished their episode on Earth, Mm -hmm. and he had teased a new episode that they had. I think it was like be their 11th. Okay. Um, can't spoil that for the group, but <laughs> no. they have some cool stuff, cool content that they're coming out with. Awesome. So, had a lot of fun. Great. Yeah, we'll go look for that. And then for today's episode, we have Steve Zornitzer. Right, yeah. The Associate Center Director of AIMS. Yeah, the way that I kind of think about it is, you know, you have different groups within AIMS. You have an aeronautics group, you have a technology yeah. group, engineering and science. Steve's kind of like heads up all those, helps pull all mm-hmm. those um, those all groups stuff. together Yeah, yeah to, to work on their different projects to kind of find out where people can work together. Uh, one thing of which that he had worked on is that, that we talk a lot about in this episode is sustainability base. Mm-hmm. It is a building here at NASA Ames, which has won a bunch of awards for being like the most like the greenest building yeah. in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been honored a bunch of times, and I heard it was the first carbon neutral building in the U.S. government. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it has all different aspects, like it has solar panels, it mm-hmm. has like bloom boxes, and even if you're sitting in that building, you'll notice like the shades and the lights will dim and modify and change wow. in order to conserve energy. It's yeah, really neat. It adjusts on its own. That's impressive. Cool. So for people who are listening, before we jump right into the episode, a reminder that we have a phone number and you can call with any questions or comments. Leave us a message and we'll see about getting you an answer and sticking that in a future episode. That number is 650-604-1400. So give us a call. And otherwise, you can do the same on social media. We're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So send us your questions. Excellent. So for now, we will listen to the episode with Steve Zornitzer. We always like to start it off the same way to hear a little bit about yourself. So what brought you to NASA? How did you end up in Silicon Valley? Well, it's my third and final time living in California. Okay. Um, it's a place I've always loved, but for some reason I always got pulled away for other reasons. And so this time I decided a great opportunity. Like staying for, this time. Yeah, great opportunity for a job about almost 20 years ago now. Uh, in fact, it is 20 years. Uh, and so I just um, decided to take advantage of the uh, the opportunity and came out here. And so like, when you first joined NASA, was that straight out of school? Is this an entire career of NASA? Or no. how did you how did you fall into it? No, I've had a, a storied career. <laughs> um, I got my PhD out of University of California, Irvine, um, dating myself here in okay. 1971. Okay. Um, and then immediately took a job in Florida, of course, uh, much to my wife's chagrin at the time, um, <laughs> uh, leaving California. But it was a great opportunity professionally. Uh, my PhD was in uh, neurobiology. 
Okay. And so I and I was hired right out of my PhD to be the first faculty member of a brand new neuroscience department that was just starting up at the medical school at the University of Florida. So I, it was a job. It was my yeah. sort of a dream job, and I took it. So I left California the first time. Spent ten years building a department um, in, in the humidity in Florida. of Florida. <laughs> Alligators, mosquitoes, yeah. humidity. But it was a great professional opportunity, and I enjoyed that part of my career. Then um, had the opportunity to do a sabbatical, came back to California to the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, where I did uh, about a year and a half's worth of really interesting research at the Salk Institute. Um, And then rather than going back to Florida to my academic position, Mm -hmm. I took another academic position at my old alma mater, University of California, Irvine. Um, And from there, I spent about almost three years there. And then got uh, an invitation to come back to Washington to join federal service uh, at the Office of Naval Research in Washington, where I was offered the position and took the position of director of all of the life science and biomedical research for the Navy, Okay, which was, again, a very interesting position, interesting opportunity. And it was from that position that I got asked if I would be interested in coming out to NASA Ames oh, wow. in 1997. So that was my third time to California. <laughs> and uh, well, it makes sense. my I mean, final time. Well, and you're talking about like, you know, neurobiology, mm-hmm. you know, somebody doesn't naturally think of that as NASA with rockets and like sending astronauts. So talk a little bit about that. But I guess it makes a little bit more sense on the administrative federal and just kind of the science behind it and running it. Yeah. So there, there's that aspect of it yeah. the, from the just the administrative. Um, yeah. You know, I was an SESer for the Navy. Uh, at the Office of Naval Research and developed a lot of research programs uh, for the Navy and the DOD. The hook that the then center director, Harry McDonald, um, mm-hmm. used to bring me out here was uh, the, the work that I had been doing at ONR, part of the portfolio that I had created for the Navy, was a, the first interdisciplinary research program in what's called neural networks. Okay. And so my research interest at the time had really migrated toward how the, answering the question, how does the brain process information? And what can we learn from the way biological systems have evolved to do that, that we might be able to mimic and emulate in silicon, in engineered okay. systems, that would be a, an alternative approach to the way traditional AI uh, tries mm-hmm. to learn about the world. Yeah. Uh, so Harry McDonald at the time brought me out here to be the head of um, the computer science research programs here at NASA Ames. One of the reasons he did that was because he believed that uh, traditional AI was reaching its limits okay. and that if NASA was going to use artificial intelligence in the future to assist human exploration with robotic systems, those robotic systems would need to be intelligent. And they'd need to learn from their environment in situations where there was such uncertainty that they couldn't be pre-programmed. And that's what we do. That's what all living organisms do. They learn about their environment, and they, in many, many cases, they learn in real time, and they adapt to it so that they can survive. Well, Harry believed that that's the kind, those are the qualities 
that yeah. NASA needed in its intelligent and robotic systems if we were going to explore effectively in the future. So that's why he hired me was because I had that kind of background and expertise. Well, it's been a, been a field day when you came on over because if you think of the broad portfolio that is Ames, I mean, on one side you have these bioscience, these, these science experiments that are going to the space station. But on the flip side, you have supercomputers, you have intelligent systems. Right. So this must have been perfect for you yeah, as it you was, came it, in. You're it like, was a great opportunity. And and Ames had, at the time, Ames had a really deep bench in, yeah. in uh, computer science researchers. And so it was an exciting place to be. Okay, so tell the people what is what do you do now? What is like what is the big fancy title that Steve has, <laughs> Steve has now? Well, so over the years, <laughs> I guess uh, they kicked me upstairs, and so now I am uh, the associate center director for research and technology at NASA Ames, and part of my job yeah. is to sort of coordinate uh, and oversee the overall research and technology portfolio for the center. So what does that end up looking like day to day with the broad portfolio, with the different things that are coming up? Do you do you focus on one at a time or is it just how do you kind of direct this? What, what goes into your day to day? Well, I think one of the goals that I, I had from the very beginning and from my own experience being the director of a, um, a technical organization uh, prior to this current position, I saw that many of the technical organizations were stovepiped. Yeah. They really weren't optimizing their effectiveness. They weren't coordinating with one another. They weren't collaborating in an inter interdisciplinary fashion to the extent that they could. And so one of the goals that I had in this new position as associate yeah. center director um, was to sort of create a community of technical organizations to get them all working together to break down some of those artificial turfs and artificial barriers that they constructed for various reasons. In some cases, they just inherited it because that was the <laughs> exactly. culture. Exactly. This is how we do things. That was the culture. So part of, the, part of it was changing the culture so to be much more collaborative and um, work more effectively as a team of researchers and break down some of those interdisciplinary barriers. Yeah, and I'd imagine that there's a lot of you know, synergies and different advantages and efficiencies you can build off of that. Because just from the course of doing the podcast and talking to people, you find people who are, you know, working on intelligent systems, but they're able to leverage stuff that other people do are doing in like fluid dynamics or, mm -hmm. or the supercomputing for aeronautics. There's a lot that people can kind of pick and learn off of each other. Now, I think, so. you know, when we, when we did an inventory um, of our entire research uh, and technology portfolio, we realized that there are many, many cross-cutting themes. Exactly. That yeah. cut across traditional disciplines and uh, traditional areas of research and, and technology development in, in such a way that if we were to capitalize on those cross-cutting capabilities that we have, everybody wins. It's it's like a rising tide floats yeah. all ships, and uh, so that's that's the sort of research environment we want to create here. Yeah, and I guess that fits into a lot of the stuff that we've had conversations about of you know a, a campus of the future, looking at like what's the next step or what what Ames is, is is looking like, and a lot of that also comes into just these facilities. I mean, we're on this right old navy, old former naval base. And there's different processes, like we did a podcast a couple of months ago where USGS is coming and joining us over here at Ames, you know, sitting side by side researchers. So, you know, see what other kind of synergies right. we can get between NASA and them. Um, then also new buildings coming up. Yeah, I mean, one of the goals of Campus of the Future is to 
capitalize on the intellectual synergies that we yeah. have here among our researchers and, and, and engineers um, to bring them together physically, bring them together. Right now, given the, the just the physical constraints of the campus, they're distributed across a large geographical area on the campus. <laughs> well, that, that distribution sort of inhibits collaboration. Yeah. And so one of the things we want to do is bring these intellectual communities together so that they can actually bump into each other, you know, at the coffee pot or yes. the water cooler, to create collaborative spaces for them to work together on spontaneous projects that may arise, uh, and, and give them a workspace that really stimulates that kind of creative intellectual environment. Yeah, it's kind of creating more of those water cooler yeah. moments. Well, and, but some of that also falls into, I know you'd worked previously on what we affectionately call, you know, sustainability base. What is sustainability base? How did that all come about? Uh, it's a very interesting story. Um, in 2008, Ames applied for an agency-wide competition to build a next new building within okay. the agency. Um, and other centers also competed for that building. We won it. Um, and so we, we were, at that point in 2008, okay. given the resources, the funding, to build a new building. And this was the first new building at NASA Ames in over 25 years. Oh, wow. So okay. this was a big deal for NASA Ames. So I wasn't involved in any of this. I was yeah. doing You're doing your, You're doing job, your job, <laughs> which has nothing to do with new buildings. <laughs> yeah. um, but I was curious, uh, after we had started the design um, of this new building, I was curious about what, what it is that we were going to build. So I went to a meeting um, where the designers were presenting what, what's called the 30% design review. So they had they'd done okay. a lot of thinking about it. They'd come up with sort of the 30% complete design of this new building. So it was pretty still pretty conceptual, but you know they had drawings and they had you know, their, their notion of what this new building would be. And I looked at this presentation, <laughs> I listened to it, I saw the pictures or the architect's renderings of what the new building would look like, and I was horribly underwhelmed. <laughs> and I stood up in this room filled with people and I said, time out. Okay. I, and I, I had no idea what I was getting <laughs> myself into, but nor did I know that I even had the authority to do what I was about to do. But I hey, said, "You never know till you try." I so. said, "Time out." I said, "We're not going to build this building. This is a building that could have been built 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, anywhere in in the country, mm -hmm. not at NASA in the heart of Silicon Valley in yeah. the 21st century. Yeah. This is the wrong building for us to be building." And I said, I made a declaration in front of all these people that I had no idea what I was talking about. But I made this declaration. I said, we are going to build the greenest building in the federal government. Okay. Period. There was silence in the room. Oh, that's funny. I mean, nobody believed that I did this. I didn't believe that I did this. So I leave the room. And now all of a sudden, I have a new mission. How am I going to do this? <laughs> so I went back to the then center director, uh, Pete Warden, and told him what I had done. And he said, oh, good for you. That's a great idea. Let's do it. So <laughs> um, two weeks later, uh, I happened to be at a meeting at Johnson Space Flight Center in Houston. And they had invited one of the world's leading green architects to come and give a talk. Okay. His name was uh, Bill McDonough, William McDonough. And he had um, just recently written a book called From Cradle to Cradle. And it was his thesis and his belief that you can really be very, uh, very good stewards of the mm -hmm. environment without compromising workplace environment or quality yeah. of construction or anything else. But just 
being smart about how you design things. So I listened to his talk. I was very impressed with him. I went up to him afterwards, and I said, we have to talk. Yeah. I want to build the greenest building in the federal <laughs> like government. I just volunteered to build and, the <laughs> and I need you to help me. <laughs> nice. And so he had built many sustainable buildings around the country, around the world, but he'd never built one for the federal government. Yeah. So this was his opportunity to build the greenest building in the federal government. So we went into a room, and we spent two hours with you know scratch paper and things just talking. And one thing led to another, and the bottom line is we built the greenest building in the federal government. Nah. And we called it Sustainability Base in honor of Apollo 11's 40th anniversary of you know, one giant step for mankind, yeah. uh, landing on the moon and, and at Tranquility Base. This was Sustainability Base. It's a LEED Platinum certified building, okay. uh, one of the very few in the federal government. At the time, it was the first one in NASA. Now there are a couple more. It generates more energy than it consumes every single day of the year. Oh, really? It takes that extra energy and distributes it on our local electrical grid to other buildings, <laughs> yeah. thereby reducing those buildings' impact on the environment. The building uses 90% less potable water okay. than an equivalent-sized building does, a conventional building. And we do that with a combination of water recycling of gray water in the building, using the same technologies that we developed for the International Space Station to recycle oh, nice. the water on the International Space Station. And we use that recycled water in the building for toilet and urinal flushing, so we don't have mm -hmm. to waste drinkable potable water yeah. for those purposes. And we have, you know, we use recycled water for irrigation uh, around the building for its um, landscaping. Uh, the building. Is a very smart building. It's got over 5,000 sensors distributed throughout the building, mm -hmm. and those sensors inform the building's operating systems and, and subsystems about where people are in the building, what kinds of lighting conditions should be on, what the temperature of the building, um, and whether it's comfortable in different zones of the building. I remember sitting in there doing a presentation, and one time, like some of the blinds coming and going mm -hmm. automatically, yep. and it's like, oh no, it's adjusting to the root, the temperature in the room, yep. the energy that it's taking up, and it modifies it. It's a dynamic building. I mean, it, it the sensors operate those buildings. So, in the case in the, of the example you just gave, you were in a room that yeah. at that time of day there was direct sunlight coming in on the building, mm -hmm. on the windows creating glare on the interior spaces. So the sun sensors that we have distributed all around the building uh, detected that direct sunlight coming in on those windows and it lowered the blinds, the yeah. shades, so that we would minimize the amount of heat gain and the amount of glare uh, for the occupants inside. Oh, that's awesome. I'm talk a little bit about, like you mentioned that it takes in more energy than, than it uses. So where does that energy come from? Is it a mix of like solar panels? I've heard balloon boxes or? Yeah, so oh. the, there are two sources of energy production. There's photovoltaics uh, on the roof. Okay. And that generates every day about 30 to 40% of the total energy consumption of the building. And in addition to that, we have a solid oxide fuel cell system that okay. was actually a spinoff from NASA technology back in, in the late 1990s for the Mars Exploration Program. Um, a person who eventually became the founder and CEO of Bloom Energy, which okay. manufactures these, oh, right. Those was the precursor. A, was, had been a, a contractor for NASA, and he was developing this energy system for a Mars rover. 
Um, and one thing led to another, and um, he spun off that technology and now created Bloom Energy, which manufactures these all for all over the world. It's a very, um, very efficient way of converting a natural gas, and the source of that could be methane or or other um, combustible hydrocarbons using a chemical catalytic process to manufacture energy. It's, so it's not a combustion process. So mm-hmm. you're not you're not actually burning natural gas yeah. to produce energy. You're just taking a chemical conversion process, converting those hydrocarbons and pulling off the pulling it off the electrons <laughs> for energy consumption. So that's that generates um, quite a bit of energy each day. Oh, wow. It works 24/7. It's a very clean way of producing energy. You're just talking about the different technologies and spin-offs even of, you know, being NASA, we're working on this stuff, being incredibly efficient up mm-hmm. in space, might as well use that here. And this is probably perfect. We're recording this pretty close to Earth Day. I, I remember watching, I was watching TV the other day and there was a comedian giving a giving a rant about, um, you know, respecting Earth Day and like, oh, forget about Mars. It's like, don't think of Mars as like Earth 2.0, like, oh, we can ruin this planet and then go to Mars. Like, you need to focus on Earth. And, I'm, and I, was, I was going through it. I was like, on that journey to Mars, you have to be so incredibly efficient with your resources that you literally will will develop those technologies that could be used on Earth yep. to be more efficient. Not only just here, but think of throughout the entire world where That's right. potable water is a problem, energy is a problem. If you can be efficient in space, you can use that technology here. Well, in fact, that was exactly the, one of the intentions from the building of the building from the very beginning. You know, we listed what our intentions were before we built this building, and one of them was to take NASA aerospace technologies and bring them back to the people of planet Earth and demonstrate <laughs> their effectiveness in this building. So this building is really a showcase for many NASA technologies. Um, I mentioned the water recycling. That's a that's a very mm-hmm. good one. The fuel cell technology, the photovoltaic technology, yeah. was really developed for NASA satellites back in the late '50s and '60s, early '60s, and it, from there it became a consumer commodity. Oh, wow. And you know, it's it's now penetrating uh, the you know the world's energy production uh, <laughs> facilities all all over the planet, and so it's having a major effect. There are other technologies in the building, like the glazing on the windows is the same glazing that's used on the helmets of astronauts. And so a lot of these features have been spun off into technologies that the private sector has licensed. Yeah. And now we're, we're incorporating them again in this building. So one of the very interesting success stories of this building is that it is demonstrating NASA technologies back in a building on planet Earth. That's awesome. Okay, so you build the greenest building in, in the federal government. It's been recognized for different awards, you know, different recognitions. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, from the very beginning, you know, the building was dedicated, interestingly enough, five years ago oh, wow. on Earth Day. Okay. So on April 22nd of 2012, we dedicated the building. We had a big you know, dedication ceremony in front of the building. That same day, uh, we had received notification that we won LEED Platinum certification, Okay. the, the day of certification. Uh, we had already won some awards even before the building was certified. We won a Silicon Valley uh, Leadership Award for Green Building. We won an Actera Award. We won the Governor's Award. Uh, we've won a White House Award. We've won a, G- a GSA, General Services Administration Award for Green Buildings. And just two weeks ago, we learned that um, 
a group called California uh, Green California Summit had uh, given us an award uh, for leadership in uh, green buildings. And we, we put a lot of um, information on our, our website about the building. And they discovered this website and yeah, found out more it. about the building, discovered that we're actually you know, producing more energy at, on the site than we're consuming, and um, decided to give us an award. And so it was very nice for them to do that. And uh, we're pleased that the building still gets that kind of recognition. Excellent. So before we wrap up, is there anything like advice that you give to people or, or even more so, what do you see as kind of some of the future things that, that you want to see at Ames or things that you're working on, you know, towards whatever the next five to 10 years at Ames are going to be? I think the key for us is to continue to attract um, bright young people to join us here at NASA Ames. Um, I think as more and more of the, um, the senior members of our staff uh, are become eligible for retirement, we really want to bring in the next generation of scientists and engineers and accountants and lawyers yeah. <laughs> and you know all all the people that make a a community like this uh, function and operate effectively i think one of the things that i'm most interested in is creating an environment for that next generation workforce to come in and and prosper and be creative and be involved in solving some of the most interesting challenges that mankind will face whether it be solving problems here on planet earth or figuring out how we fit into this universe of ours yeah. and is there life elsewhere and what are other habitable worlds like and can we create a habitat elsewhere yeah. for, for humankind? Um, I think these are really fascinating questions and it's this next generation of scientists and engineers and workers who, who really will be part of that. So I think one of the things that excites me is try to create an environment for them that nurtures that and stimulates that. And that's one of the cool things, especially if you have a part in designing that campus and the the buildings that pop up, because that's a legacy that remains even long after you've retired and moved on. It's like it's something that it's it's stable. It's there. Yeah, well, I hope so. So cool. Um, for anybody listening who has any questions for Steve, uh, we are you we are on Twitter at NASA Ames. We're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Anybody has questions, feel free to. Um, send them on over there and we'll loop in back to Steve and, and we'll get back to you guys but thank you so much for coming on over Steve my pleasure thank you thank you